This is Laura Deirdre with the Becker's Healthcare Podcast. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Adam Zoller, Chief Information Security Officer at Providence. Adam, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast today. Thank you, Laura. Happy to be here. Now, I know we have a lot to talk about. There's so much happening in cybersecurity right now, and especially for healthcare. But before we dive into my questions, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself and your background? Yeah, certainly. So um, I've been with Providence for about three and a half years now. I'm the Chief InfoSec Officer there. It's a pretty typical Chief Information Security Officer role. Um, I lead uh, functions in identity and access management, security engineering and operations, governance, risk, and compliance. And then we have a global function that we operate in Hyderabad, India for 24 by seven um, functions and support that we couldn't do really as easily if we were just completely US-based. Prior to Providence, I was with uh, General Electric and their family of businesses for about five and a half years in roles in GE corporate where I led Cyber Intel, um, GE Capital's retail card unit um, in the banking and financial sector where I led security operations and GE Healthcare where I led an enterprise security Um, most recently before transitioning over to Providence. And then prior to GE, I was in the federal government space for a number of years where I did cyber intelligence work, incident response work. And concurrently, I served in the Army Reserves um, in information operations and cybersecurity for about 11 years um, at the same time as my civilian career. Oh, wow. So you've got all this experience uh, in thinking about whether it's with the federal government or with GE and now in healthcare with Providence, which space is the most stressful to work in? <laughs> yeah, you know, stress is a really relative thing. Um, and it's it's kind of a funny concept. Like, you know, when you're, when I was a cert leader for Booz Allen Hamilton, for example, I thought that was about as stressful as it, it can get, you know, because you're being attacked constantly in the federal government, you know, consulting space. And then I went to GE and GE was constantly getting attacked as well because they have very valuable intellectual property. And it was a different type of stress, you know, because the roles were very different, but the problems we were solving were very, you know, common across industries and across companies. You're trying to influence culture. You're trying to be a good leader and set an example for your people. You're setting strategy, you're evaluating technologies and working with outside vendors a lot of those skills really translate from position to position, but the level of stress, you know, it's, I guess, you know, stress again, it's relative, but um, you know, it's it, cybersecurity is not a low stress field. So I guess, you know, getting into this field, you kind of know, you know what you're signing up for. And um, you know, me personally, I, I'm the type of person that runs to a fire instead of away from a fire. I like to solve problems. I like to be engaged and involved in things. And if I'm not learning, I'm, I get bored. So this has been a perfect career path for me. That's great to hear. And it sounds like you're in the exact right place. So um, that's that's awesome. Well, in, in thinking about cybersecurity in particular, how have you seen cyber attacks evolve in the healthcare space throughout your career and throughout your time with Providence? Yeah, so I've been in the healthcare sector now for, say, going on five plus years between GE and, and Providence. And, um, you know, certainly the attacks have evolved, the types of attacks that we're witnessing, the level of... Um, um, confidence that the attackers have, and really the brazenness, if that's a word, of the attacks that we're even um, that that we're seeing these days. You know, if you'd asked me ten years ago if we would see true cyber attacks against critical infrastructure, in attacks you know being defined as a cyber action for the purpose of denying, degrading, destroying, you know, a system or access to a system, I, I would have said, you know. The likelihood's probably not that high, simply because a lot of countries, when you look at 
attacks, true attacks, again, deny, disrupt, degrade, destroy, a lot of countries, governments around the world see that as an act of war. And um, so if you'd, you'd asked me again 10 years ago, if we'd see a true attacks against the healthcare sector, I would have said, yeah, you know, probably not that likely. But um, given how profitable ransomware has been for attackers over the last several years, um, we're only seeing these attacks. Unfortunately, they started, you know, we started seeing these attacks, ransomware attacks about you know, five, six, seven years ago. And, and they're becoming more and more frequent um, and more and more damaging. So, um, yeah, you know, in the past 10 years, we've seen a pivot really from attacks for the purposes of stealing information, stealing intellectual property, maybe um, getting a foothold in an organization and using their IT assets to attack other organizations. We've seen attacks, you know, the activity move kind of evolve from that to true cyber attacks where these criminal groups are really brazenly going after healthcare organizations to take their systems down to purposefully to impact patient care so they can make a dollar or make a ruble, if you will. And it's, it's pretty despicable, if you ask me, um, what these attackers are doing. So yeah, the attacks have evolved quite a bit over the last even decade or so. Um, certainly since the beginning of my career, they've, attacked, they've evolved tremendously. And I think this, this trend is only going to continue. Um, you know, the attackers are moving to where the money is. So anything that's easily monetizable, anything that's going to put the fire under you to pay a ransom, for example, like the attackers are going to continue doing that. That's a really great point. And so interesting to think about, you know, in terms of how the cyber attacks are disrupting patient care and what that really means for the hospitals and health systems. And then to, on the flip side, the impetus for making the attacks really to make a dollar or, you know, for the financial gain um, in it. So, I, I can imagine that for a hospital chief information security officer, that's really a top concern um, is making sure their systems are secure and, and trying to stay ahead of the curve. In general terms, how should health system executives, whether they're in your role that's primarily focused on security or even the CEOs, CFOs, and other strategic leaders, how should they be thinking about cybersecurity strategy and really boosting their defenses? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, uh, cybersecurity, I think, first and foremost, is a team sport. An IT team or a cybersecurity team within an IT team that's trying to solve this alone isn't going to be successful. So I think health system executives should be thinking about how to enable their cybersecurity team to work collaboratively with um, not only the other IT teams, application owner teams, your electronic health records application owner, um, but also work with your business operations side of the house to make sure that strategies for securing your information systems you're really your information ecosystem. It's not just one thing. It's several different um, pieces that fit together in an ecosystem, um, including business operations. So we've security strategies throughout that ecosystem. And what I mean by that is cybersecurity isn't necessarily just patching IT systems. It's not just responding to incidents on computers. It's also making sure that your physicians, your clinical staff can, and your nurses, your people that are on the front lines delivering that high quality care, making sure that they have security procedures built into their operating procedures so that they know if an IT system's unavailable because of a cyber attack, they know how to continue delivering care. I can tell you as an example, um, you know, ransomware attacks, these, these ransomware attacks that we're seeing nowadays impact our industry. They're taking out access oftentimes to electronic health record systems. And not a lot of um, clinical staff coming out of academia these days know how to operate um, doing paper charting. So something that, uh, you know, just one example of an area where um, cybersecurity needs to be woven into um, the operating fabric of an organization is um, 
you know, using cyber attacks as a, or attack exercises as a um, push to get clinical staff to train up their staff on system non-availability in the event that IT systems become unavailable for a period of time. Um, and not just weaving security um, practices throughout your operations, but also thinking about how do we work collaboratively as an industry, you know, across hospital organizations, between organizations that may be competing with each other in the same geographies? How do we share cybersecurity strategies to collectively keep ourselves safe? Because I can tell you, if one hospital organization in a region gets taken down from a cyber attack, those other hospital systems in the region, are they prepared to absorb the additional patients that are going to be diverted their way? in the event that all the patients are going to be diverted out of one hospital system into another? The answer is probably no. Cybersecurity, I don't know that it's really a differentiator necessarily between uh, hospital systems for patient care. So I think we're all better together. The more that we share information, the more that we collaborate with law enforcement, the more, the more that we collaborate with um, Homeland Security that's trying to protect our critical infrastructure um, sectors, I think we're all collectively going to be better as a result um, and provide better care to our patients. And then lastly, cybersecurity is, it really is a cost center for an organization. And there is a balance, a fine balance that you have to walk between um, pouring more money, more resources into solving cybersecurity as a, as a problem space um, versus um, what are the risks? What's the dollar value of the risks that you're trying to, to solve for? Um, because every dollar that you spend on security is a dollar that you take away from patient care in some fashion or take away from innovation or take away from reducing technology or process debt. So um, being mindful that cybersecurity is a risk reduction proposition and that, again, every dollar you spend on it is a dollar you can't spend somewhere else. Be sure as a system executive that you're talking with your security leaders about how you quantify risk and what's an acceptable level of risk for an organization to operate within. Because again, as a risk reduction function or a risk function, um, you will never truly be able to eliminate all cybersecurity risk out of your system you have to be comfortable with accepting some level of operating risk with cybersecurity. Absolutely. I think that's such a great point in definitely in thinking about what, as you mentioned, what each hospital and each health system is willing to do, um, what the risk tolerance is, and then, you know, that risk reward of, of putting up the defenses needed, um, you know, to, to really make sure that the overall resources are being spent correctly. And, I, I think that's such a, a conversation that so many different uh, organizations have and have to constantly be thinking about. Um, and I appreciate too, when you were talking about working with um, hospitals and health systems regionally, just to collaborate on cybersecurity, is that something that you've been able to do and connect with other um, local health systems or regional health systems on your end? Or is that something that you hope to do in the future? Yeah, both regional and national level health systems. And I, I'm proud to be able to call a number of CISOs of other major health systems and small health systems, my friends, you know, personally that, you know, honestly, they, they call on me when they have problems and I call on them when I have problems and questions that I need answered. Um, it's really a, um, a very collaborative, more collaborative, collaborative space than it leads on from the outside. Um, and yes, absolutely. We do share information very actively with other hospital systems, both that are a part of our community connect practice, but also um, outside of that space, we share information pretty, um, pretty actively. And I know that the information that we provide um, to the federal government as well, um, and state, um, state agencies as well, um, as it relates to cyber events, um, that information is in turn sanitized and then turned around and provided out to other health systems um, and other organizations. I mean, everybody has, has a role to play in cybersecurity across sectors. 
that information that we provide to law enforcement and to the federal government about cyber attacks that we face, um, that information, again, is sanitized and provided out for the betterment of the community. So yes, on, on a number of fronts, the answer is yes. Got it. That makes a lot of sense. You know, it's really helpful to know. Now, I know a lot of aspects of healthcare and health technology is looking at um, these days where artificial intelligence really fits in and how it can boost functions and operations. Is there a place for artificial intelligence within cybersecurity? How can it help? Yeah, absolutely. And there's been a lot that's been written over the last few weeks since um, Microsoft made their announcement there. Um, integrating open AI technologies into their um, search platform, which I think is pretty exciting for the future of search on the internet. But from a security perspective, there's also been a lot written about how large language models and specifically technologies like what open AI is bringing to bear, how these technologies can potentially be um, used for the betterment of security, but also to the detriment of security. And I'll give you a few examples. So on the, on the negative side, detriment to security, I've seen some actual um, uh, demonstrations where um, you can feed into the model and say, hey, um, you know, here's some code, find me exploitive, exploitable vulnerabilities in this code that's been written. And artificial intelligence can operate at such a scale where it can look at thousands of lines of code very quickly. And then with the large language model technology on the back end, it can say, you know, what we know about exploiting vulnerabilities, here's a few lines and here's a few vulnerabilities that can be exploited in this code that you've provided me. And that's, you know, interesting from an offensive security standpoint, because you know you can actually feed in code that you're writing um, if you're a coder, and say you know is my code secure? So that's interesting on the on the security side of the house, but also you know as an attacker you can say how can I actually gain access to an organization leveraging artificial intelligence as a tool to find vulnerabilities that I can exploit to penetrate systems. Um, so it's kind of a double-edged sword. Um, as far as um, artificial intelligence to uh, help with security. You know, after uh, over the last six or eight years, I've heard a lot about um, artificial intelligence, machine learning being used in security. I think a lot of it is um, it, it, it's a lot of smart marketing, if you ask me, up until very recently, where I'd say over the past like year, year and a half, I've seen actual practical implementations where real artificial intelligence is potentially coming to bear, where it's going to really help security practitioners better the security of their systems. Um, you know, I mentioned the case where artificial intelligence can help find, help you find exploitable vulnerabilities as an attacker, or potentially if you're a coder, it can help you find exploitable vulnerabilities in the code that you write. Um, on the flip side, if you're a cybersecurity defender um, and you're looking through large amounts of data, immense amounts of data on a, on a daily basis, say you get an alert out of your um, defensive technologies and that alert contains logging information that has a tremendous amount of data that you have to comb through as an analyst to figure out what happened that set this alert off. Well, artificial intelligence can kind of act as a heads up display to say, hey, you know, this is what not only what triggered your alert, but maybe it's a false positive and maybe artificial intelligence can help you tune that alert so that there's less false positives. Or maybe it's a true positive alert and your analyst needs to take a closer look at specific artifacts within the logs that have been forwarded to the analyst. And artificial intelligence can help you comb through those immense amounts of data to say, here's what set the alert off and here are the security deficiencies in your system, or here's what an, at an attacker is trying to do in your system. So to me, artificial intelligence can be a, a strong force multiplier for your analysts. Um, and given that in cybersecurity, we have such a, um, they call it the cybersecurity skills gap. It's really hard for me as a security leader to find 
qualified, you know, numbers of qualified talent um, that I can hire into my health system to help us protect against cyber attacks. Um, given that there is that skills gap, that that talent gap, you know, a shortage of millions of cybersecurity practitioners that are needed in our field, potentially artificial intelligence can let me hire people that are maybe less experienced in cybersecurity and bring them up to speed quicker. Um, because again, it's acting as kind of a heads up display for my analysts and a teaching tool. Um, and or, you know, I can hire uh, analysts with a specific skill set, say, um, network analysis skill set, and then artificial intelligence can supplement that skill set and give them skills in host artifact analysis. So I think um, both as a um, testing tool um, and as an, or I'd say, you know, a few elements, a testing tool as an analyst heads up display as a skills multiplier for my analysts. I think artificial intelligence is going to really change the game from a security practitioner standpoint, but also potentially enable our adversaries that are targeting us with additional tools that they didn't have before. So it's going to be a bit of an arms race. It's so interesting to hear about. And I can imagine as somebody who works in the cybersecurity space, having that artificial intelligence to uh, you know, boost what you're doing uh, can really make a big difference. And, and as you mentioned too, I know there's, like you said, a cybersecurity talent shortage. And so um, being able to fill the gaps there is, is really critical for hospitals and health systems. And you know, along those lines, when you think about the resources needed to devote to cybersecurity over the next three years or so, obviously it's variable by the size of the system, um, you know, and the ground that they're trying to cover. But you know, what do you feel like you'll need in order to build out a team that's going to be, um, you know, helpful in, in really the type of team that's necessary for a health system like Providence three years from now versus today? Yeah, I think, you know, if I look at the healthcare industry at large, um, there's still a lot of variability in the level of, uh, and I'll, I'll say this, the quick answer is a couple of things, really two things um, that come to mind. Um, but if I look at the healthcare industry at large again, and I, and I look at um, some of the problems that my um, peers in the industry are dealing with, um, there's still a lot of organizations that are struggling with the level of um, executive buy-in and support for cybersecurity as a mission space. Um, they're, they're struggling to gain that support at the like non-technical executive level for their programs um, within their organizations. And I can say at Providence, I've had an immense amount of executive support and board of directors support for cybersecurity as a, um, as a problem we're trying to solve, as a risk area we're solving for. And that support that I've had um, from uh, my senior executives, non-technical and technical senior executives, whether it's CIO, CEO, CEO's peers and direct reports and the board, that, that support that we've had for cybersecurity, the willingness to listen to um, uh, the risk problems we're trying to solve and think very strategically as a system um, about cybersecurity as a risk area that we need to solve for in terms of the business continuity consequences um, in terms of disaster recovery, in terms of collaboration cross industry, I'd say Providence is really, that's, that's something that has really set Providence apart in a lot of ways when it comes to securing our health system and providing value back to our communities that we operate within. Um, so that's number one, is I think executive buy-in and support is, is really the number one thing that health systems can, can do to further their security and to create a culture, a cyber secure culture. The second piece is um, thinking about cybersecurity as an operational mission space. This isn't just some technical problem to solve that you solve and you know flip the light switch and the light goes on and you, you don't have to think about it again. Cybersecurity is a journey. 
And it's not a journey that you can really solve if you're a, you know, US-based health system, for example, you can't really solve this problem with, by just throwing US-based talent at this problem. This is a 24 by seven, you know, 24 hours a day, seven days a week problem. Attackers are always coming after your system. So what I'll say, another thing that's really benefited us at Providence is our investment in global operations. Um, we have a global innovation, innovation center in Hyderabad, India, full-time Providence caregivers that are providing cybersecurity support during the nighttime hours. When my team in the US, uh, my, my shift team in the US is asleep, they're awake, they're defending our network. And then in the morning, they hand off operations to my team in the US. And it's this constant cycle of global cybersecurity operations. And I'll tell you, that's done wonders for us from a staff retention standpoint, um, from a staff attraction standpoint, we've been able to attract really top talent globally to work at Providence. Uh, retention, um, you know, you think about hiring, um, if, we, if we only hired US-based staff to solve this problem and we have to run cybersecurity events 24 hours a day, seven days a week, those staff are going to get burned out pretty quick. So operating in a global operating model, a follow the sun model has worked out really well for us where we can have people doing a 24 hour um, mission, but um, operating on, you know, uh, normal shifts, normal times so that, you know, you're not having to work 24 hours a day, seven days a week when you have a cybersecurity event, that global operating model is absolutely critical. And if not global, be prepared to operate around the clock. But I'll say, yeah, top two things is health systems should be thinking about operating globally, despite maybe even just being health US based or regionally based. Think about how you're going to operate globally. And number two, how do you create that cyber secure culture and how do you gain executive buy-in and board buy-in to this as a risk problem? That's so interesting to hear about. And definitely it seems like it's been a great value proposition for you to have that global uh, IT team and the cybersecurity support there, um, which is amazing. Adam, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. This has been a really informative and interesting discussion, and I look forward to connecting with you again soon. Thank you, Laura. I appreciate the time.